Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. By the way, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And what's the new one? Clubhouse? Or I, I don't know. I have, to be, I have to be cool. I got to get on Clubhouse or something. <laughs> I'm sure our guest is that cool and uh, is completely up to speed on what all the kids are doing. Uh, so our mystery guest is not is not so mysterious. Her name is Sarah Isger, who, according to the Dispatch, where Sarah is staff writer and podcast mogul, has served on three presidential campaigns and in three branches of government. Though I'm still trying to trace where the legislative experience occurred, but we'll get to that. Uh, Sarah is a har- a graduate of Harvard Law, a veteran of the U.S. Department of Justice, was the deputy campaign manager of Carly Fiorina's presidential run. And is the host of two of my favorite podcasts, Advisory Opinions and the Dispatch's flagship program. Sheesh, that's <laughs> a couple of my <laughs> friends who are like 140 years old don't have the amount of experience that you have. But uh, uh, you're clearly not 140 years old. But uh, Sarah, <laughs> thank you. Getting for older in. every day, though. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. You know, I, uh, I, grew up outside of Houston, but I am, I am a Houston native. And so watching what's going on in Texas right now, pretty hard. A lot of friends down there who are really struggling, not having power for three nights in a row with young children. It's, you know, single digits, uh, really cold. They're on a boil only in some parts of the city for water. So anyway, if you've got some extra prayer time today, uh, toss one out. Everyone in Texas is struggling, but I just happen to to be talking to a lot of folks in Houston, and that's hard. But uh, but we're doing well here. I'm in Virginia, just across the river from the District of Columbia, and um, you know, waiting for spring. Yeah, yeah. So your people are okay down in in Houston. Everyone's okay, but it is unpleasant. I mean, it's hard to just be cold for you know days on end. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to make a joke about it dipping into the high 50s here in California, but it doesn't seem as funny. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. man. California and Florida, you guys can just jump off a bridge with your weather. It's so nice. <laughs> it is actually pretty windy up here. I, did, I don't know if you can hear it outside, but so we do get our extreme heats and some extreme things. And I don't want to say the E word. That's never pleasant to say the least. But um, but you, you grew up in rural Texas. Uh, we were just talking before we hit record about how I usually hear West Texas and that implies rural, but I'd never heard it just rural without it implying West Texas. So where in Texas did you grow up? So I grew up in Fort Bend County, which is not that far from Houston, actually, but 
I, I usually am, like have to say the rural because otherwise people just think you grew up in like a suburb of Houston. And I grew up at the end of a mile long dirt road uh, as an only child. And it just, a, it's a pretty different thing than growing up in suburban Houston. My mother rehabilitated wildlife. So we had uh, owl boxes in the back, uh, big enclosures for deer that had been orphaned, lots of songbirds, baby rabbits. I was a hit for show and tell in elementary school. I will tell you what. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was reading about you going on um, birding excursions in South America and Africa and like it was a real deal. Yeah, my parents are very into wildlife and birding. So, you know, hours and hours spent finding a bird of paradise, for instance. Um, seven hours down the uh, Tampopeca River to go find macaw salt licks, you know, and go find macaw nests. We camped in the Ngorgor crater for a couple weeks. Serengeti. Uh, yeah, lots of it. Zimbabwe. All, yeah, lots of, lots of animals in my upbringing. Like sort of, it's weird. Like I have this political side, you know, I love history, but I also have this big science nerd side. I love microbiology, evolutionary biology. So yeah. And um, if you come over to my house, a lot of people are pretty off put because I have binoculars <laughs> and birding <laughs> books everywhere. And they really think I'm spying on my neighbors and I'm very confused what everyone else is doing with their binoculars. <laughs> like that's, you know, what binoculars are for, right? Are you Gladys Kravitz? Is that, is that what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember from, you know, you're too young for Bewitched or whatever it was? Uh, the oh, Gladys. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, maybe this is a, a bit of a stretch, but I'm drawing a connection between, I, I've heard you on advisory opinions really do a lot of homework. Like you go down these rabbit holes and is it too much of a stretch to think that the extent to which your parents brought you on these excursions to find a certain kind of a bird that th there's a connection there maybe? Interesting. You know, I there's probably something to that. There's also a lot of patients involved in wildlife rehabilitation, um, you know, trying to feed baby animals that don't know that you're there to help them, growing mealworms. We had rats in the freezer that you'd have to defrost and like cut up and stuff like that. Ratsicles, we call them. Um, but I think there's also something to being an only child that you're used to going down rabbit holes, literal and figurative. <laughs> Um, because there's not a whole lot else to do. There's not a lot to distract you. You know, I grew up obviously before we had real television by which I mean cable TV or Disney plus, or, you know, all these fun things. Like we had one of those televisions that still had the like dial that you turned. Um, <laughs> and there wasn't anything on during the day. Uh, the highlight was Sesame street and lamb chops play along. There was some reading rainbow for sure, but no, for the most part, like you might as well go down the rabbit hole got nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, we actually did have holes in my elementary school playground uh, that tarantulas lived in. And so you could go down that hole and get a tarantula out, which I would often bring to my teacher. But now looking back, I feel really bad because I'm concerned about what happened to those tarantulas. <laughs> I, in my, you know, I assumed we were just releasing them back to their holes, but boy, I'm going to guess that's not what was happening to those guys. Sorry, is there, tarantulas. 
<laughs> is there a statute of limitations on <laughs> somebody's <sighs> coming in and come, you know, that tarantula? <laughs> I know. Well, because my mother, you know, really specialized in deer and raptors and stuff, I sort of fancied myself the the head of the insects and little reptiles brigade. So I would go out there and like feed the bees. And if they fell into the water, I would pull them out of the water and dry them off. And so, you know, gosh, I would never have wanted to hurt an arachnid. I'm, I, I love spiders. I love all those little critters. Duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> my husband, God, you want to talk about something funny? My husband, like he he knows this about me, and so he's just accepted it, which is what you must do with your spouse. But any bugs that get into our house are treated like royalty. They are they are captured. Same rule yes. in our house. They are released. They are sent, you know, on their best way. If there's anything we can provide them before we release them, all the better. Um, so yeah, there's no killing of bugs in this house. Yeah, it's it was my daughter that introduced this idea. So now we have this whole ritual with like Tupperware and paper yes. that we slip under yes, the Tupperware. That's, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have a little tumbler glass and then the paper goes, you know, slides by, uh, under the tumbler. Yeah, I'm with her. Your daughter's great. All right. Well, I did not, ex I was expecting to get into the Smartmatic lawsuit or something today. Did not expect <laughs> to get into this conversation. Um, <laughs> So going from rural Texas and your birding excursions to Northwestern in Chicago must have been quite a culture shock. Yeah, look, I truly did not know that people lived, survived in climates that cold. <laughs> I know that sounds stupid. I hear it, but I didn't. And if I had known that Chicago was that cold and what that cold meant, a day-to-day -day reality, I would not have possibly have gone there. But like, seriously, my college experience was not all that positive in large part because of the weather. Cause I had a lot of trouble adjusting to not being outside all the time. Like my life in Texas, like I am outside every single day, constantly. I, I really, you know, there's like extroverts and introverts, like where you get your energy from. I get my energy from greenery and being outside and dirt and nature. And so to not have that in college was probably an important thing for me to learn about and learn about myself. But boy, that was the toughest part of the transition. Yeah. Yeah. Are you far enough out in Virginia to have dirt and green and yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yes. And my bird feeders and yeah, all that's sorts great. Of stuff. Yeah. Miss Lisa too. Uh, my, my wife grew up in Alabama. So e even though we're in Southern California, we don't get a huge amount of land everywhere we've been. She's managed to find some greenery that we can work into the, into the yard and uh, now it's um, succulents. Uh, that's that's the way we've figured out Ooh, this high yeah. desert climate. So yeah, she's really into that. So you studied history and poli-sci at Northwestern. It seems like that you had a pretty clear focus on what direction you wanted to go. Is that right? It looks that way, but I try to make sure that college students or high school students, you know, whoever I'm talking to understand that like it felt the least linear that anyone's path could ever feel like. So I actually went to Northwestern as a math major. Oh, uh, my uncle had been a theoretical physicist and I was like, yes, I, you know, this is my genetic inheritance is to be into science and stuff. And so I'll do chemistry and math. And, um, there, it was the first semester they were doing internet registration at Northwestern and the system didn't work. And what it, did was allowed anyone to register for any class. And so because of my weird math program that I was in, I needed another class that was sort of like on Monday nights, basically. So I needed sort of an off time class. 
and I accidentally registered for a senior political science seminar that was going to be about the media's coverage of the 2000 election. Oh, okay. And I was blown away. I was like, what? I, I had never read the New York Times. Obviously, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know there were crossword puzzles or whatever else. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about op-ed writers. I didn't know White House reporters, like none of it. Like the West Wing was on television. So I was very into that television show. And these students were able to talk about the world and what was happening in the country in a way that I thought, gosh, if you think about college less as this is what I need to build a career and this is the rest of my life and more like, huh, I have four years to master a skill set. What skill set do I want to master? And I thought if at the end of four years, I can sound as sort of erudite and worldly as these guys do, that would be a good use of my time. Uh, and then right after that hit me, the professor told me I absolutely could not be in this class. And so I begged and begged and begged. And so I was the only freshman allowed in this class. So I promised to behave myself and not say too many stupid things. <laughs> I have so many questions for you now. Okay. So first of all, it makes sense that you went in as a math major because in, in a lot of your work, I hear you talk about polls, for example, in a much more nuanced way than the average, oh, I read a headline and the polls were wrong. And, you know, like you obviously, you know, for lack of a better word, really geek out on it, but in an informed and a nuanced way. So that... That kind of makes I sense. I love statistics. Yeah. I've, I've always loved statistics because to me, statistics is um, a much more visual math. Like I, you can, you can, you're working with shapes in your head when it comes to statistics. Um, and, and that I always found really fun. I'm a, I'm a pretty visual person, a pretty like picture oriented person. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to an interview you did. It was, I think it was in 2019, maybe summer of 2019. And a couple of things that that stood out at me were number one, you said, "Listen, 2016 polls weren't wrong," you know. It and you, you specified a couple of things. For example, the popular vote. It, I think they were projecting uh, about two and a half or two point six win for uh, Clinton, and she ended up winning the popular by by three. But th there's a more important point that you made, and and I I don't know if you've talked about it since, but I'd love to expound on this. Not here, but. At some point, maybe just a seed for a possible <laughs> show. See, a lot of folks are thinking, well, we have to win a certain sector of the voting public. And by winning the, the voting, you know, that sector, we mean 50 plus one, right? But you made the point that uh, I think it was African-American males uh, of a certain age range that, no, if you move the needle from, you know, 15% to 16%, that's actually a win. That could be, or 18%, whatever it might be, that's actually significant. So gradual gains, incremental gains are really important. And I guess in your time working for various campaigns, this is something that really came into play. It's true. And I think that especially right now where you're seeing such major shifts in the two political parties that we just really haven't seen in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, in any of our lifetimes, really, I mean, maybe you could argue pre-1968 around, you know, that you were seeing some shifts there, but I don't think that will even turn out to be as massive as this will be. Then those incremental changes in who you can pick up allow you to drop off others and still hit that equilibrium of, you know, 50 plus one. Yeah. And 
so you're going to see a lot of political consultants looking at like, okay, where can I pick up two points so that I can lose two points over here when I piss off these people? <laughs> okay. So I was going to go down more of the bio, but um, this is an important point. I want to explore it a little bit further with you. I see, well, let's call them green shoots of maybe not a third party, because I've heard you argue against the viability of an actual third or fourth or fifth party. But there's a new coalition emerging. I see elected representatives like um, Kinzinger and Ben Sass. I see independent media outlets like the Dispatch or the Bulwark. Uh, I see political action committees. I mean, the Lincoln Project is, I don't know what's going to come of it, but, you know, uh, Republican voters against Trump. And there's other groups or America, um, not America First, um, Country First that, that Kinzinger has put together. I see this. It's not just like one voice. I see this whole ecosystem emerging. And frankly, it's not just Republicans that found Trump and Trumpism to be so abhorrent that they can't hitch their wagon to that, whatever that version of Republicanism anymore is. I also see independents and I see uh, mo not moderate Democrats, but Democrats whose priorities maybe align more, say with a Kinzinger and a SAS, uh, Democrats who maybe, um, I don't know if I'd call myself a Democrat, I'm more of an independent that I think of myself fiscal conservative, uh, socially libertarian. So I could align, whatever that movement is, I could see myself aligning there. So what do you see, say 2022, 2024, is there something more significant? And can they find, can that um, ecosystem find a home in the Republican party, the Democratic party? What are your thoughts on all that? Well, we have a lot of politically homeless people right now. And that's always uh, a fun time if you're in campaign world because you want to make the case to them that they don't need to be homeless because they can support your candidate here. But then you run into these incentive problems. So Congress has basically decided that it doesn't want to be a legislative branch anymore. And you have freshman members of Congress coming in and saying they're not even hiring legislative staff. They're just hiring communication staff because they see their role as one of persuasion, name ID, fundraising, getting reelected. And let me explain why. Because if you are working on legislation that has no chance of getting passed, then what happens is in your next election, someone flanks you from either your right or your left and says, they were willing to do this for legislation and it's not as conservative or as liberal as you voter maybe wanted, which of course is how legislation works, yeah. uh, or at least it used to. And so as that has continued, Congress has in fact passed fewer and fewer laws to, to fix any problems that we may have. I mean, if we can't even agree on infrastructure fixes, and you have all of Texas you know, with an energy grid that clearly is having massive, massive problems, um, that's not a good sign for the future. So then you end up with elections where everyone says on a presidential election, this is the most, most important election of my lifetime. And if you lose this election voter, your way of life is under threat because that other guy is gonna have so much sway mm -hmm. because the presidential 
the executive branch with the administrative state has now taken over those legislative responsibilities. And so all of that is wrapped up in who the president is. And so then every election does become the most important of your lifetime, perhaps. And it creates this fear when your team loses that now you're in big, big trouble. And it just slowly but surely seeps that away from the legislative. That, by the way, is the same reason why the judiciary has become such a flashpoint, because then the only check on the executive are these judges who can issue nationwide injunctions. And slowly but surely, everything has moved away from the congressional branches. I bring all this up because when you're looking at these politically homeless folks, they're the ones who would probably be most likely to be to support politicians, not who are moderate in the way that we used to use that term, but who are willing to compromise to find solutions. And I think what you just said about being fiscally conservative and socially liberal or libertarian are the most homeless right now. Yeah. You, I'm guessing, would be quite likely to support someone like a Ben Sass. Oh, yeah. Ben Sass isn't actually moderate. He's not a moderate guy. He's a deeply conservative guy who you probably disagree with on a lot of actual policy issues. But uh, he is probably someone whose process you like. He's willing to say, like, look, I'm not going to get all of what I want. You're not going to get all of what you want. Here's a solution that maybe gives each of us more than we have right now. Those are the people who are most politically homeless right now. And actually, that's what's most dangerous, I think, to the sort of threats of self-government. The threat to self-government right now is not Donald Trump on January 6th, though that was very, very bad coming from a U.S. president. But the threat is what allowed that to exist in the first place, which is this sense that there's no point in going to Congress. They're not going to solve anything. The only one who can solve anything is Donald Trump or Joe Biden or the president, because they're the ones who have not just that one lever of power, but all the levers of power. Right, right. Yeah, to your point, I heard I heard Senator Sass in a conversation, I think it was with Jonah about two or three months ago, and he pointed out his voting record, I think about an 89, somewhere between 89 and 90%, maybe a little bit more, one point more, voted with Trump. And his point was that because a lot of what he ended up voting on, voting on aligned with his conservative philosophy, I have no problem with that. I would rather, I would rather get behind a candidate that maybe on a specific issue I disagreed with, but had a, an integrity by which they arrived at their conclusion. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And he had a lot of those individual policies I did end up agreeing with because again, it, it aligns with uh, a fiscally conservative outlook. But uh, let me, at, when you first started describing some of the dynamics, I was really hoping, and I'm glad you didn't go down the inglorious MTG path. So we won't, uh, we won't do that today. <laughs> so let me ask another specific question. I live in California 25. Our representative is a Republican, Mike Garcia. He did not sign on to that amicus brief, the Texas AG's uh, lawsuit, but subsequently he's voted to object to the electoral college votes. He voted against impeachment and he did not vote to boot MTG off of her committees. I'm wondering if you think these votes are consequential enough to be a resounding issue in the 2022 race? Ooh, that's a good question. I 
let's let's put things into buckets. You've you've known me. Love I love buckets. putting things let's into buckets. buckets. I'm a I'm a bucket fan. So I think that there's two different buckets for 2022. One is the the buckets you're talking about that are sort of these um, big picture political buckets of what type of congressman are you, and and everything you're describing goes to sort of what are your principles? What are you here for? Um, what do you think this experiment is about that we're running? But there's another bucket, and that is, why are my kids not in school right now? Why did my grandparents' nursing home allow uh, COVID-positive patients back into the nursing home? Um, where's my vaccine? Why is my small business not able to get a loan when, you know, how much went to fraud in the stimulus bill? And I think that that second bucket will be a lot more salient to a lot of people's lives. And in particular on the school issue, when you look at where Democrats have made the most inroads that have really, I think, are the, the tipping point for their current holding of the House, the Senate and the presidency, it's suburban women. Those suburban women are the very same people who now have had to quit their jobs or are pulling their hair out because their kids' public school is still not open. Yeah. And how are they supposed to work? And they're now full-time teachers and trying to get on Zoom calls. And Joe Biden is, you know, saying that he would be a nonpartisan, bipartisan president, that he would follow the science. And Anthony Fauci is saying, yeah, the schools can reopen. And you have Vice President Harris on the Today Show today. You had Joe Biden last night just giving these really wishy-washy answers on what they were going to do about schools. I think that's always going to be more salient when it lands in people's lives, when it's their kitchen table that's being affected, rather than these philosophical points on what kind of congressman are you? Right. Now, look, all that being said, there no doubt will be plenty of ads with video of what happened on January 6th. And then, you know, the tagline, like Mike Garcia, let it happen or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I think the candidates that focus on all of the women who have had to leave the workforce, all of the small businesses that uh, have had to close and what those families are supposed to do now, frankly, I think they're going to be more successful campaigns than the ones that focus on January 6th or MTG and her committees I mean, yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene's name ID has risen astronomically over the last six weeks in this country. It's still pretty low. And I think you're gonna have a lot of people go, yeah, I don't care about that. I'm, you know, I need to get back into the workforce. And I, my kid now has forgotten how to read. Who yeah. cares what committee she's on or who she is? And so I think there's this habit in DC to think about the philosophical side because those things are really important to us. And I think they're incredibly important to the future of the country. But when you talk about a congressional election, I don't blame most people for, for focusing on schools, the economy, jobs. They, they can worry about process when they've got time to worry about process. And right now they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also fair to say that each district is unique, you know, for sure. Georgia, I think it's Georgia 14 is a very different district than California 25. 
<laughs> Quite. <laughs> That's like the understatement of the century. <laughs> well, Mike, Mike is a Republican and he won the district, but he won it by less than one tenth of one percent of three hundred and fifty thousand votes. But you know, and that's my contention is that he seems to be his vote so far seems to be appealing to a small segment, a very small segment, and not the entire the purpleness of the of the district. But get, getting back to your your story, it, it looks like you were spending time on a Senate campaign during undergrad, had a stint at the DOJ while you were at law school, got some work on Romney's campaign towards the end of your time at Harvard. Um, it just seems like you you made sure to be like in the mix right from the right from the get go. How early was it that you knew you wanted to do to some version of like political campaigns and journalism and the 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 career that you've sketched out for yourself? I so it's funny because I uh, was teaching college last year, and it has opened up my eyes that there's this whole other experience that one can have in life and it's I just don't understand it but for me the like what's next it like it it weighs on me it, it from when I was incredibly young like what can I be doing with this time am I using my time valuably I think I must have just been an incredibly morbid 17 year old <laughs> because to me our time on the planet is so short and it's our most valuable resource far beyond anything else. So it's like, am I using this moment with the most value that I can possibly squeeze out of it? Um, and so, yeah, like when it came to any free time that I had, uh, is it a book that I should be reading? Is it a campaign that I could go work on to learn something? Like, where can I learn the most? Where can I absorb the most? Where can I see someone else doing something and say like, ooh, I agree with that. I don't agree with that. I want to be like that person. I don't like what that person is like. And those have been such valuable experiences. At the same time, I was talking to a group of um, college students uh, last week with a former boss of mine, Barbara Comstock, who was the director of communications at the Department of Justice during the Ashcroft years, right after 9-11, and I went to intern for her. And, you know, she's someone whose career I wanted to emulate in a lot of ways. Now she ends up running for Congress, of course, something I do not want to emulate ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's another part to life that is so wildly different between the two of us. She went to law school also. She was the only other director of public affairs at the Department of Justice who had a law degree from her to me uh, in that time span. And I, I don't understand how people can do that job without a law degree, but that's a different story. Um, but it was this class about women in leadership. And these women are looking at me, you know, these young women, and to them, it's like, wow, yeah, it's like one thing after another, and she's crushing it. And presidential campaign while in law school and then 2012 and then 2016. And it's like, it all looks really nicely charted out. It looks planned. It looks like this was inevitable. And it was important for me to tell them that I think that this conversation that we too often don't have with men at all, and then mislead women about, about work-life balance. I wish that we were all far more honest about the real trade-offs in life. And so I'm talking about using my time valuably because at 18 years old, what was valuable to me was career opportunities and knowledge. And I just was this sponge and I just wanted to go find every little bit of moisture I could and absorb it. 
Yeah. Um, but there's a whole other part to life. And I was not very good at that. Campaigns don't lend themselves to being very good at anything with your personal life. But, a, you know, I would work for 18 months straight and I'd be on the road for good chunks of that. And I'd work 18 hour days. Mm-hmm. And as I explained, like, um, that means that you, you miss birthday parties. Obviously you miss weddings, you miss baby showers, all of it. And then I would have six months of unemployment where I'd be like, Hey buddy, like I can drive you to your dentist appointment. Like, what do you need? I could be like a really good friend for six months. Um, and there are chapters in your life where that is good and fun and positive and what you need to do. But it's really important. I think that we explain to people that that's one chapter of my life. And then you have to turn the page and have this other, like that six months off chapter where I slept all the time, uh, binge watched Netflix, um, (laughs) ate a bunch of good food. And like, that's, that's equally part of campaign life as well. Um, and, and that when it comes to work-life balance, knowing who you are and whether that sounds fun to you is really important before I go tell a bunch of people to like go join campaigns and live out of, you know, I had a twin mattress in the back of a borrowed Explorer for that Corning <laughs> campaign in 2002. Wow. Um, and that to me was the best time ever. Uh, so know yourself. If you're someone who, who thrives on making it to those birthday parties, um, you're going to need a different job. Yeah. I was curious about something related. I don't know if this would be considered a chapter or a moment in your career, but speaking of women in leadership, there was a moment after you left the Department of Justice in what was it? 2019, 2018. Uh, well, so I left in 19. I was removed from my job as director of public affairs in late 18 when Jeff okay. Sessions was fired. And then you were hired as an analyst at CNN and it was like dogpile on the rabbit. It was like, <laughs> and I, I was wondering if that was because you were part of the Trump administration or because you were a woman to be perfectly candid or a combination. You know, uh, definitely a blessing in a lot of disguise. Boy, that was well-disguised blessing. Um, that was difficult. <laughs> That was it's hard. Like, that sledgehammer to my forehead was a real disguise <laughs> of a blessing. <laughs> That's right. That's so, yes, exactly. But I think there are moments, you know, when um, Apollo 13 is coming back and they're explaining in the movie just how long the odds are that you're going to get them back alive. And it says, okay, even if we do this, even if that gets fixed, even if we do all of this, when they hit the atmosphere, there's this one, um, they use percentage, you know, degrees or whatever. Basically you have to be at the perfect angle because if you come in too steep, you're going to come in too fast and you're going to burn up. And if you come in too shallow, you're going to bounce right off the atmosphere. And, um, when it comes to some moments in your career, uh, you're going to hit it just right in a bad way. And I think, I think that I, you know, if it had been a week later, I think that whole story could have gone really differently. Um, you have sort of a media environment, Trump environment, feminism moment uh, where we were culturally, and it just hit exactly right 
wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah's Houston, we have a problem moment. <laughs> it really, oh man, that was, so, I mean, I've had, I've had bad, you know, I was on the front page of the National Enquirer for having had an affair with Ted Cruz in 2016. What a joke, right? Like, oh my God, to, to tell people that there's always like this moment where they're like, oh, oh my God, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, no, actually it's hilarious. I went out to Target immediately to get myself a copy of the National <laughs> Enquirer. Uh, when something is so outrageous, it's funny. I think if it hit closer to home, maybe it wouldn't have been or something like that. But like, obviously wildly untrue. Um, and so that was funny, but you know, that was scary as well. There were people on the internet who were trying to find me and I had a plan for how I was going to be able to get out the back staircase with my cats. And, you know, so that's all to say, like, there have been bad media moments, um, in my career for sure. But that one like takes the cake by a long shot. Um, I think that absolutely there is an aspect to the scrutiny that women in Republican politics get. I think there's an aspect of scrutiny that women in politics get. And then I think there's an aspect of scrutiny that uh, women in the Trump administration get where it was seen as this betrayal um, to, to womenkind. Yeah. And I think you just, you have to combine all of that into one. And then, you know, media was under a lot of scrutiny. And so for CNN, I think it was really hard. I think that was a bad moment for CNN. Um, they had hired plenty of people from the Obama administration, from other, you know, the number two at CNN was uh, uh, Governor Cuomo's communications director at one point. So it's not like it was unheard of. So I think for them, it was confusing as well of like, uh, hey guys, like George Stephanopoulos, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, like, yeah, pretty high up in the, in the Clinton campaign. Yeah, there's endless examples of people moving from politics into media. And I would argue, in fact, it's really important that we have that. Um, and I hope that my experience doesn't dissuade either people on the media side from hiring folks who've worked in administrations uh, or on the administration side of people going in, because what you don't want is something I see happening more and more, which is these like young gun reporters who are 22 out of college or 24 They've never worked on a campaign or in politics. And so they don't know how it works. And so there are stories that I see, particularly on the campaign finance aspect, where it's a complete misunderstanding of, of something where if they had simply, you know, entered for a semester or volunteered for a summer, I don't mean they need to make it a career like me, but some experience is wildly valuable. And I'll just give one example where I see, you know, so-and-so made $20 million off that campaign. Well, what they saw was that on the FEC report, it shows that their LLC was paid $20 million. But what you would know if you worked in campaigns, like you'd be like, well, no one's paying them $20 million. Right. That's crazy. They were buying television advertising. That money runs through a media buyer. So you don't know how much they got paid. They might've gotten paid $1 million and 19 of that went to the TV ads. They might've gotten paid 5 million and 15. Like there could be a story there, but you don't got a story <laughs> if all you're doing is looking at an FEC report and saying like, ha ha, I found this, you know, all this grift. Right. Um, and I think that's the sort of value add that someone like a George Stephanopoulos brings on top of understanding. I mean, there's stupid stuff like, 
where things are located in the West Wing <laughs> that's really valuable to know. Um, so I hope that, I hope it's just this moment that everyone can sort of say like, oops, that might have not been great. And I really hope it's not, oh, now we can never hire someone else because then we'll be accused of hypocrisy because of the Sarah incident. I don't want that to be the takeaway. So do you, as a professional, begin to compartmentalize? Is that the way that you get through moments like that? And compartmentalize not just the stories themselves that are coming out, but then also have, yeah, I guess you have to sort of compartmentalize, okay, this person is not a serious person. I, I really can't spend a lot of time and energy on this person or certainly on like w- one of the tweets that I saw was um, AOC. And, and my first thought was like, what does AOC have to say about the hiring practices <laughs> of CNN? You know, I mean, to your point about MTG, she's like one quarter of 1% of one half of one third of the federal government. Why are we, why did this get a lot of press? Yeah, I guess, and and maybe um, this is not correct from a factual standpoint, but you're right. It is, it is how I have dealt with it, which is I don't take it personally. I don't think it is personal. AOC doesn't know me. So it's not like she's giving some reflections on my character or my moral underpinnings. Um, there are people who, if they said, Sarah has done wrong here, that I would take it personally. Um, but yeah, AOC isn't one of them. People on Twitter, no. And I, I think that DC has a way of, uh, DC likes a mob, frankly. And you know, there's the old saying in DC, if you want a friend, get a dog. I think that's a really <laughs> pathetic statement. Um, and I hope to at least be my own little tiny part of proving that's not true. I've had friends who have been the center of really negative cycles where they did something inexcusable. They did something wrong. I don't understand why we can't say, okay, buddy, man, you screwed that one up, but I'm still your friend. We all do things that are wrong. We all make mistakes. We all, I hope, learn from them. But this idea in DC that you can't be friends with people unless uh, not, it's even worse. It's not unless they're perfect, unless they haven't been caught for doing anything wrong. Because I'm sorry, like no one even in DC thinks that we're all perfect. It's that um, once you're caught, then you are blacklisted. Then you can't be you know, show up, you can't get invited to those parties. You can't be friends with that because that could reflect poorly on me that I'm friends with someone who's publicly not perfect. Um, and so I do try to make it a point when I see someone who has been attacked by the mob, you can't often stop a mob, but you can at least reach out to that person and say, Hey, uh, this is going to pass in like 24 hours. It's going to suck for those 24 hours. But after that, just know that you're fine, that your friends are still your friends, that not to take it personally, that this wasn't about you. This was about your your little Apollo 13 ship yeah. um, hitting at that exact angle on the atmosphere at the exact wrong time. Yeah, yeah. That's good advice. I have a good friend who's going through something like that now, but it's not her own doing. Uh, some, some terrible stuff came out about a ministry that she's running and uh, family members, and she's now the brunt of a lot of the attacks. And she... You know, uh, folks in that situation just need a, a friend. So that's that's good advice. Speaking of imperfect people, I had a, I was just so curious about your time on what. <laughs> so a friend of mine went was um, 
Ted Cruz's college roommate for a year. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And he's a very um, accomplished writer here in Hollywood. He just did the Chernobyl uh, last year. He got a lot of acclaim for that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Wow. That was great. <laughs> Craig, Craig says like, Ted's always been this guy. He's always been an <laughs> asshole, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, but, but I was looking at like, I was looking at his career leading up to that run. I th was it the uh, attorney general run? Right. He was going to run for attorney general in 2010, but a lot of dominoes had to fall. Greg Abbott was at that point, the attorney general. There's assumption that he would run for governor, but then Rick Perry didn't go. And so no dominoes fell. Ted, now to mix metaphors, was the guy without a chair when the music stopped playing. Okay. So I was looking at his um, his career as Solicitor General, and it was quite an illustrious run that he had. Was that what drew you to that campaign? So I met Ted when I was still a law student, and he came up to moot one of those cases when he was Texas Solicitor General. We invite uh, lawyers, but it t tended to be public sector lawyers to come argue their case in front of some of our law professors and allow students to watch as practice before they would go to the Supreme Court. Uh, if you worked at a private law firm, you would generally be able to have your own uh, practice with very expensive people and you didn't need to make it public and potentially embarrass yourself or give away your strategy. But uh, Solicitors General of Texas were very happy to do it publicly. And so Ted came up to do that. And Ted has had a knack for rubbing people the wrong way throughout his career, <laughs> but all of those people, I think, will also tell you that he is one of the most brilliant legal minds in the country. You know, you can, you can think he's a jerk, but he is smart and strategic and, uh, you know, can repeat back anything he's ever read, um, and he's funny and he loves doing Simpson impressions. <laughs> um, and so now, like, that is a fun thing that you want in someone who's running to be the attorney general of Texas. And so, yeah, I was like, this is great. He's young. He has all these qualities that I think are important for a Texas attorney general. And he's offered me a job. So that's really awesome and cool. That's a good thing. Now, the downside of Ted, yeah, he rubs people the wrong way. He has just an uncanny ability to do it. I, I actually have always wondered this. And I would love some sociology professor to run an experiment on the impressions that people make based on nothing except how someone looks. I've always thought that people make a lot of assumptions about my personality based on how I look. And then it's self-fulfilling, right? If someone treats you like you are a certain way, you start acting that way more and more. And so I wonder whether some of it is just that Ted, maybe he's an unlikable face truly <laughs> and then and so he gets treated as if he's deeply unlikable whereas i think ted finds some of that pretty hurtful because i don't i think he's like i don't think i'm unlikable i try to be likable but something about ted that i do think is fundamental to who he is but has also held him back at times and right i'm saying this about a u.s senator so who am i but he thinks because he is so smart that he can out strategize, that he can play five dimensional chess. When in fact, the world isn't a chessboard. Some pieces aren't limited in how they can move. All the pieces can move everywhere at all times and we're not taking turns. And it's far more chaos theory than chess. And I think that Ted's view of the world as a really complicated chess game 
um, does him a disservice because I think you can see it in his presidential run in 2016, especially in how he dealt with Donald Trump, that he thinks he's playing chess and he can outmaneuver, that he can outstrategize. And in fact, he missed he missed the Jeff Goldblum aspects of it, you yeah. know, that um, that there was a lot, just endless stuff going on that he couldn't control. I'll, I'll tell you, not that you asked, but I'll tell you anyway. My, my greatest objections to Ted Cruz are twofold. It's like one and one A. One is he seems to be unmoored by principle. Like there, there's no principle that he won't reverse course on seemingly. But the, except for maybe one, and, and the one is what his most prominent uh, principle, maybe it's reflective of what the Republican Party has become over the last decade or so. And that is his vilification or villainization, what, what's the word, vilification, villainization of those who are Democrats or just not in his coalition, you know? And I just don't think that's a good guiding principle for politics or governing or anything really, anti-partisanship. That's really interesting. So did you read the Tim Alberta piece in Politico magazine right now? It's super long on Nikki Haley. I would just, anyone who's oh. listening to this, if you haven't already read it, uh, it's going to take you 45 minutes. It's a long, there's three like chapters it. to this magazine piece. So prepare yourself, get, get a nice cup of tea, snuggle up in bed, like this is not to read on your phone in between phone calls, but it's it's the story of Nikki Haley. And I think it's the first real entrance into the 2024 primaries that we have. And this is gonna tie back to Ted Cruz, but part of Tim Alberta's point, one of the most talented writers when it comes to talking about what's going on in the conservative movement or the Republican party. Uh, so just anything Tim Alberta uh, writes, I read is that Nikki Haley is unmoored to any policy, that there is no core to Nikki Haley, uh, that her core is that Nikki Haley wants to be president. And so you can put everything in that lens and it explains her actions far more than Nikki Haley really believes in conservatism or William F. Buckley's conservatism or Reagan's conservatism. Like none of that will help you explain Nikki Haley as much as Nikki Haley is gonna be president. And I think that there, um, people have said that about Marco Rubio. People have said that about Ted Cruz. This is not a new allegation against anyone. People have said it about Bill Clinton, right? There was no there there. It was just, it was ambition wrapped up with some zipper problems. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and I think there's two types of politicians in this country. Those who are singular in their core, Bernie Sanders being, I think, obviously the, the biggest example of someone who's like, I don't care if you're voting for me. This is what I believe. You can join <laughs> me. You can not join me. I don't care. And in fact, I think that the hardest thing for Bernie Sanders was when it looked like he could win. Because yeah. then it was like, well, wait, should I change this little thing just to try to win? Ugh. And he had a lot of trouble with that. Um, and he brushed he his hair. Are... I mean, at a certain point, he did start brushing his hair. So <laughs> Right? And you're like, ooh, he's losing his touch. Um, <laughs> And then you have the far more common mold that even a lot of these people who sell themselves as being principled and having these core, that's just part of the sales pitch. They are a lot of ambition um, and what they believe is secondary to who they believe in, which is themselves. And by the way, just like for a day, what it would be like to have that self-confidence, I would, I would love 
just to experience that feeling. But anyway, I, they don't see themselves that way, right? Nikki Haley doesn't think like, I don't believe in anything. I just want to get elected. And I wonder, I wonder whether a better explanation to them that would ring more true with, with who they think they are is that they contain multitudes and they sell themselves differently. They pick a different key on the piano to hit based on the mood of the country and the electorate. So it's not that they reverse course on many things. It's that they emphasize different things. I think that's what Ted Cruz would tell you about his beliefs. I think that's what Nikki Haley would tell you. I think that's probably what Bill Clinton would tell you. Whether you as a voter think that's a sufficient explanation, I am not here to weigh in on that. Right. I do think that there's more nuance to people than we give them credit for. Fair enough. Yeah. And some of the things that come to mind where it was the most stark reversals, you could say are superficial, you know? Right, right. Where he was uh, after Scalia passed away, you know, versus what he said after, our, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So there, some- I think there's politics also. Like, I think people are born to be hypocrites when it comes to politics. I mean, <laughs> my God, at the last four years hasn't made hypocrites out of everyone, then I assure you the next four will. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I Well, I have so much that I need to ask you. So I'm going to ask you on air. I'd love to have you back because I have so much more to, to ask you. So if um, if all goes well, maybe maybe we'll earn another visit with uh, with Sarah. So I'm really curious about your decision, your decision to join Jeff Sessions Department of Justice. What did you have reservations about the Trump ad administration? How serious, how grave were they? What, what was your thinking in all that? So I wrote this op-ed in the Washington Post that's about twice as long as op-eds in the Washington Post tend to be. <laughs> and I was very grateful to them for publishing it. And even then, my initial version was even longer than that. I have a quote, actually, from that piece. Okay. I think it's the okay. one that, that you're referring to. In the Washington, in December, you wrote, there were people who accepted jobs in the Trump administration despite their profound concerns about the president. We believe that good and competent people should work in our government and that conservatism's traditional goals, individual liberty and limited government could still thrive in a Trump administration. And you went on to say, we obscured the reality of a Trump presidency from the public. That's what jumped out at me. Is that the piece that you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, because, um... I campaigned vehemently against Donald Trump. I worked for Carly Fiorina. And then when Carly Fiorina had to drop out, I was part of the team that made the decision that Carly should endorse Ted Cruz because he was the last guy standing against Donald Trump. Not, you know, because (laughs) Carly Fiorina had any particular love for Ted Cruz, but the imperative was to stop Donald Trump from being the nominee. Footnote on all of that. Um, there were so many Democrats who were rooting for Donald Trump to be the nominee because they thought he'd be the easiest to beat. And this has repeated itself through history on the Republican side and the Democratic side, where they want to run against a person in the party who's the most abhorrent because then their guy will win. And I hope everyone has learned something from that. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't beat Donald Trump. And maybe those people shouldn't have been so quick to cheer for Donald Trump to win the Republican nomination Maybe we can move away from that. I think it is um, poisonous. But then after Ted Cruz dropped out, 
Carly Fiorina was offered a spot at the Republican convention to endorse Donald Trump. Again, I was in the room where we decided to turn that opportunity down. Um, I was on cable news until the election talking about Donald Trump as a, a dangerous, morally corrupt person. Okay, then he wins. Now what do you do? Now we're not talking about whether people should vote for him, whether he will run the country. He is now in charge of the executive branch. It's a totally different calculation to me of whether you now want good people to go into government to make our government run as well as it can. At that moment, I thought it was a no brainer. Of course we want good people going into government. And uh, I was offered the opportunity to go into the Department of Justice, a building that I love so deeply. And I actually do mean the building. I love the people in it too. And a lot, of, you know, the people make up the building in some ways, but actually I also love the building, literally the structure and the artwork in it and walking through those halls. Um, there's nothing like it. So yeah, that, that, that was a no brainer. I also knew that if there were a problem with Donald Trump, it would be up to the Department of Justice to do its job. As it turned out, that happened much sooner than I thought. Um, my first full day on the job was the day that Jeff Sessions recused himself from the Russia investigation. And wow. within two months, we had appointed a special counsel with acting attorney general Rod Rosenstein. So things moved quickly when I was there. But when I left, reflected back on that, it's incredibly hard. What I said in that Washington Post piece was that by having good people in government, the outward appearance of the American public was that Donald Trump just said crazy things, but that actually he was getting stuff done, that the government was running relatively smoothly, that it was uh, checking off a lot of conservative boxes. That was being done, I felt, in spite of Donald Trump. And so all of those good people who went into government were obscuring what a true Trump presidency would have looked like if he had been left to what to do. And if he had known how to use those levers of power of the presidency, which he, for the most part, really didn't, thankfully. But <laughs> I, I will update my Washington Post piece here on this podcast, which is to say what happened on January 6th was terrifying and awful. And thank God we had some people in the White House today who could prevent things far more terrible from happening. And I don't know, you know, the logical conclusion of my piece is that we should have had a whole bunch of super duper Trump folks in the Trump White House and in the Trump administration, because then the American people, I think, could have had a more, a better sense of what they were voting for in November. But then I'm scared of that reality, what that reality could have looked like on January 6th. And so I am left deeply uncomfortable with the decision that our country had in 2017 and deeply uncomfortable with where that leaves us now. Gosh, I have so many more questions for you. So I'd love to do this again. I, you know, one of the big ones that I wanted to talk to you about is how the conservative legal movement really proved to be quite the hero of this last season. But we'll leave it there for now. Uh, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for spending some time with us. It's been a real treat to 
get to know you a little bit more one-on-one here since I've been such a fan from afar for so long. The last question I'll ask you is if you have any questions for me. I feel like we could do this whole podcast in reverse. Uh, I want to know how you, how you, (laughs) I don't, I don't know how to phrase this. Like why the people who you choose to interview are, I don't know, like no one cares about where I grew up, but, (laughs) but you do. And you think that informs something. And I find that really fascinating about how you choose to interview people and uh, who you choose to interview and where, what you think that informs for you. But yeah, no. So next time, next time we're doing this in reverse and (laughs) we'll do some legal conservative movement, but you're going to do the talking. How about that? Oh, wow. That'll terrify me, but I'm game. If it gets you back on the program. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm absolutely game, but real quick answer. And it requires a lot more uh, time, but I think that the, tenor of a lot of our conversations in the public square is obviously very heated and we need to reclaim that space. I think one of the ways that we can reclaim that space is by rehumanizing or understanding the humanity and the the character and the stories of the people that are in these conversations. You know, if I understand you better, if we talked about Ted Cruz today, I bet if I had dinner with Ted Cruz, I'd be a lot more forgiving about a lot of the things that really piss me off. It's about. So him. true. It's so true that when we know each other as people, uh, it's very different than on Twitter. It's very different than on cable TV. And if we could get past Twitter and cable TV, I think the country would be a lot better off. Yeah. So it's really important that I, I think it's really important that we know about your birding excursions. If the only thing that we know about you is is the you know a tweet that we saw from AOC in 2000 whatever i just don't think that's a good way to understand the people who are you know public figures who are influencers who are let's humanize people that's that's why i ask some of those questions so i love that that's a great mission yeah good mission statement yeah well, I Thank really you. appreciate you giving us the time and I appreciate getting to know you a little bit better. And I look forward to doing this again, although I will definitely be terrified to answer yes, a lot more. It's going to be super fun. I'm pumped. I mean, I, there's all these books in the background behind you. We're going to we're going to dive right in. Oh, man. Yeah, that's just my homework. Like a lot of these I, when <laughs> the thing I do in entertainment, the, uh, the the other podcast I do, I know all the, I've known them for 20 years. That's my that's my jam. But like you like you're a smart person <laughs> Not that entertainment people are smart. But like I have to do my homework <laughs> to get ready for this thing. So anyway, that's I'm not trying to impress anybody with those books. That's just my homework because I'm so like, you know, insecure <laughs> that I'll ask a dumbass question. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for your your mission here. I like it. It's great. It's great. Thanks again, Sarah. Be well. Talk soon. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Thank you.